From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. Can a democracy maintain a relatively fair distribution of income and protect its the sort of capitalist engine and have it be a free and democratic and just society? You know, can we sort of do all of these things? That's Sebastian Younger. He's a writer and filmmaker who is best known for his nonfiction book, The Perfect Storm. You may have seen the film adaptation starring George Clooney and Mark Wahlberg in 2000. Much of Younger's reporting has focused on wars abroad. He directed and produced the Oscar-nominated documentary Restrepo, which is based on his experience embedded with the U.S. military in Afghanistan in the late 2000s. Younger recently published a new book, Freedom, which is a rumination on what that word means. Today, we talked about his 400-mile walk along railroad tracks that inspired the book and how we get closer to figuring out what freedom really means. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care, and with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, and I'm host of Amicus, Slate's podcast about the law and the U.S. Supreme Court. We are shifting into high gear, coming at you weekly with the context you need to understand the rapidly changing legal landscape. The many trials of Donald J. Trump, judicial ethics, arguments and opinions at SCOTUS. We are tackling the big legal news with clarity and insight every single week. New Amicus episodes every Saturday, wherever you listen. Hey folks, before we get to your questions, quick reminder. The second episode of Now and Then, our new podcast hosted by Heather Cox Richardson and Joanne Freeman is out. Subscribe for free and listen on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now let's get to your questions. This question comes in an email from Lee, and the subject line of the email is Lisa Monaco, Cyber Sheriff. And Lee writes, hey, Preet, how about Lisa Monaco clawing back that colonial pipeline Bitcoin? About time for some good news on the ransomware front. Lee, I could not agree with you more. We spent a lot of time in recent years talking about the ways in which law enforcement has let us down, where the Justice Department is not doing this or that, and when there's a substantial victory that enhances public safety and holds people accountable or makes victims whole or partially whole, we should celebrate that. Lisa Monaco, of course, my my good friend, former colleague, podcaster with CAFE until she was summoned back to public service to become what she is now, the Deputy Attorney General of the United States. And earlier this week, I had the TV on, and who do I see? I see Lisa Monaco making a pretty remarkable announcement. The sophisticated use of technology to hold businesses and even whole cities hostage for profit is decidedly a 21st century challenge. But the old adage, follow the money, still applies. 
It's not unprecedented, but it's pretty remarkable given all the attention around this ransomware attack of Colonial Pipeline. You'll remember that in early May, that company, Colonial Pipeline, was a victim of a ransomware attack resulting in the company having to take down portions of its infrastructure. And the hackers, known as DarkSide, demanded a payment of ransom in Bitcoin. Although this is somewhat controversial, like many companies and even individuals, Colonial Pipeline felt it had no choice but to pay the ransom to the tune of about $5 million. Lisa Monaco announced on behalf of the department and the FBI that they had figured out a way to recover $2.3 million or so of the ransom that was paid by tracing, according to the New York Times, through a maze of at least 23 different electronic accounts belonging to DarkSide, that amount of funds. So I think the announcement in the case is significant for a number of reasons. Ordinarily, Department of Justice officials announce an arrest, they announce charges, or they speak after a guilty verdict of a particular individual or a group of individuals. It's not often that there is a big, splashy, significant announcement of the mere seizure of funds. But I think the ransomware problem is growing so significantly in this country and around the world that the department wanted to make a statement. And what is that statement? It's all about deterrence. To show folks, DarkSide and others, that hacks that involve demands for ransom are not the perfect crime. And simply demanding payment in cryptocurrency, Bitcoin or something else, does not let you get away with it, does not let you keep all the funds, and that the American government has the resources and wherewithal to trace meticulously those funds in a lot of different ways and can take it back. Hopefully that takes some of the incentive away from folks who try to engage in these kinds of attacks. The other point that I used to make all the time when cybersecurity was a priority of mine as U.S. attorney and that Lisa Monica reiterated and I think has become more and more important is the critical step of a company or individual who is the victim of hacking and in particular ransomware is to come forward to the FBI. In this case, that was fairly unavoidable perhaps because the ransomware attack was so public and it took offline portions of infrastructure. But a lot of the time, individuals keep this quiet, companies keep it quiet. And I think this announcement of the recovery of close to half of the ransom paid might incentivize not just the hackers not to engage in this activity, but also incentivize the victims to report it and maybe get some of their money back. By the way, Lee, you mentioned Lisa Monica, but we should also talk about John Carlin, another former colleague who now works for the Deputy Attorney General, Lisa Monaco, his old friend, and is one of the nation's foremost experts on cybersecurity. So congratulations to Lisa John, the rest of the team at the DOJ and at the FBI, great work. This question comes in a tweet from Becky, who asks, on grand juries, if the grand jury fails to indict, can prosecutors just convene another grand jury? That is an excellent question. Becky, thanks for asking it. So I'll talk about the federal practice. First of all, at the outset, let me say, and I think even lay people will understand this, if your grand jury fails to indict, you have a problem. There's probably something wrong with your case. You probably have a failure of proof, or maybe the the facts of your case don't fit the law. Because remember, although I dispute the adage that a grand jury will indict a ham sandwich, it is still true that the challenge of getting an indictment is much, much, much lower than the challenge of getting a conviction at trial. First of all, you don't need unanimity. You just need a majority of the grand jurors present. Number two, the standard is not proof beyond a reasonable doubt. It's just probable cause. And there's no adversary. There's no opposing party to poke holes in your case. So if your presentation in the grand jury has resulted in what's called a no-true bill, a failure to return an indictment, you have a problem that you need to consider in the case as an initial matter. That said, there is no law or constitutional provision that prevents a prosecutor from going back into the grand jury and representing to that grand jury with additional information or additional facts or additional witnesses or not, or a different grand jury. 
And when I say no law or constitutional provision prevents it, that includes the double jeopardy clause, which does not attach, does not apply in any way when a grand jury fails to indict. However, as is true with lots of different issues at the Justice Department and other prosecutors' offices, there's an interest in making sure that justice is not abused. And that includes the grand jury process and that the grand jury is not abused. There's a provision in what's called the Justice Manual, used to be called the U.S. Attorney Manual, that addresses the precise question you're asking. And it states, once a grand jury returns a no bill or otherwise acts on the merits in declining to return an indictment, the scenario that you mentioned, the same matter, i.e. the same transaction or event and the same putative defendant should not be presented to another grand jury or resubmitted to the same grand jury without first securing the approval of the responsible United States attorney. So what's interesting is it doesn't say you can't do it. Certainly you can. As I said, no law prevents it. It does say you need to get the explicit approval of the U.S. attorney, but it doesn't give guidance as to what kinds of considerations you take into account to allow someone to represent the same matter to that grand jury or another grand jury. Now, my recollection is in the seven and a half years that I was a U.S. attorney, I was probably asked for this kind of approval a handful of times, probably I could count on on one hand. And I always got a fairly detailed memo as to what the reasons were. And the considerations included things like the seriousness of the crime, how substantial the evidence was. There may have been a concession that more evidence was needed to be given to the grand jury than they got to make them comfortable. But in certain situations, it happens, not prevented by law. But again, if you're having a problem in the grand jury, you may be having a problem with your case. Stay tuned. There's more coming up after this. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Mint Mobile. The secret to Mint Mobile's premium but affordable wireless plans is that they sell them totally online. Mint Mobile was one of the first to cut out the costs of retail, and they then passed those savings on to you. By switching to Mint Mobile, you could say goodbye to an overpriced monthly plan or unexpected fees. You can get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. That includes unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed 5G data. Signing up is super easy and painless, and you don't even need a new device when you do. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, you can go to mintmobile.com preet. That's mintmobile.com preet. You can cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com preet. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. My guest this week is Sebastian Younger. He's an esteemed author and documentary filmmaker. His latest work, Freedom, seeks to unpack what the word has meant to different communities throughout history. From the debate around mask mandates to accepting election results, the word freedom gets thrown around a lot. Today, Younger explores how he has come to understand such an important word. Sebastian Younger, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. So we're going we're gonna to talk about a lot of things. Your time as a war correspondent, the most recent book you've written, Freedom, but we were talking before we started taping, uh, and here we are at about midday on Monday, June 7th, and you are recording from your place in Lower Manhattan. Is that right? 
Yeah, we, yeah, we live in the Lower East Side. It's a hot one today. It's already up to 88 degrees, and you have no air conditioning. No air conditioning. Uh, the windows are open, so you'll hear, you'll hear some street noise. We're definitely part of the street. So my question is, though, the, the lack of air conditioning, is that an expression of freedom or an abridgment of freedom? <laughs> well, that— <laughs> It's an honest question. I, yeah. I, don't, I don't really know the answer to that. Uh, freedom means, in, in, for my purposes, it means you're, you can't be un, un, unfairly controlled by a greater power. And so, <laughs> and the thermostat, the thermostat is a greater power. Well, no, that's just the reality of the physical world. So your book has a very broad title, Freedom, a subject that from time to time people think about, write about, argue about, go to war about, right? No subtitle to let us get a sort of a handle on what your take is here. How come no subtitle? And what would the subtitle be if you had one? Well, it's a very, you know if I could have thought if I could have thought of a subtitle that captured the the, the scope of the book, I, you know I might have stuck it in there. But you know it's a very very broad book. It talks about freedom in in on in sort of almost mammalian terms, right? And so it just you know does and freedom has too many definitions. To, mammalian as as opposed to reptilian. Well, yeah, I mean we're mammals, so the you know if we study ourselves as a species, mammals are the best reference point. Um, but, you know, in the mammalian world, this, um, the smaller individuals almost never are able to outfight and maintain their autonomy in, in the face of a larger individual. Smaller groups, likewise, uh, in the face of a larger group. But for humans, interestingly, the smaller person or the smaller group actually can maintain their autonomy in the face of a greater power. Um, no better exam- example than the Taliban in Afghanistan facing the greatest military power ever, and they fought us to a standstill for 20 years, and we're leaving on their terms. And that's, you know, that, that you would not find that in, uh, you know, we're social primates in any of, of the other primate species and any other mammalian species. It's, it, it's uniquely human and allows us access to what we call freedom, autonomy. Let's take a step back and talk about the context in which you are ruminating on these various things like freedom and culture and societies and fighting and running and all those other things that you describe in the book. The book is centered around, uh, fair to say, a hike or a trek that you and a number of other men took alongside railway lines some years ago. Yeah, that's right. 400 miles of railway walking in the Northeast, a lot in Pennsylvania. Why'd you do that? I wanted to, I wanted to meet the country in sort of the most raw terms possible. Um, I wanted to spend some time with a few other guys that had been through a lot of combat like I had. Um, I needed a kind of time out from my life, which on a personal level was, you know, meeting with some painful difficulties. Um, um, you know, I like testing myself and seeing if I can make things turn out okay. I mean, it's, um, there's something about that that's eternally interesting and satisfying to me. But why the railroad? Well, because there's sort of no man's land and you can sleep outside and you won't get arrested for vagrancy because there's no cops out there. Uh, there are these swaths of no man's land that just crisscross America and... Um, you can kind of do what you want. I mean, there's the, there's no cops. So we, yeah. you keep referring to the fact that there are no cops, which suggests that you what you were doing was not actually lawful. Did, did that did that add a level of or a layer of sort of interest or fascination for you? That because you describe at various points trying to make sure that you have not been seen by police. There's there's one example you give that a train goes by and the head of the railway catches you and your group 
and calls it in apparently, but no cops ever show up. Was that was that a feature that made it more interesting or yeah. just another fact? I mean, we'd all been in combat. There was a sort of tactical element to this that appealed to the 10-year-old boy and all of us, I think. Like, can we get away with this? And, you know, we, we were very clear that it's illegal because we were trespassing on, on railroad property, but there were no real, you know, human victims here and uh, and it didn't feel like we were doing something, you know, actually immoral. It was just, it was illegal. And uh, so there was this sort of like test for us, like, can we make our way along the edges of, of this modern industrial society that we depend on? You know, we, we would go into town and buy food and then head back out there for a few days, you know, whatever. Um, can we thread our way through the margins of this crazy society without getting caught? And um, depending on it, but also staying sort of out, out of its reach, below its radar. Um, you know, we could have walked the Appalachian Trail, but that wouldn't have been true of any, that, none of that would have been true. You're supposed to be out there. And we wouldn't have, you know, we wanted to meet Americans, you know, and, and we wanted to get to know the country. So and the, you would wander from the railway into the towns and, the, and, and meet people. Well, there were sometimes people along the lines themselves, but yeah, we would go into town and get a cup of coffee at a diner or a stack of pancakes if we wanted to have a meal sitting in a chair, you know, which felt like a luxury. Uh, and we would resupply in town. We'd get, you know, more food. You know, we did all our, obviously, all of our cooking over fires and uh, um, or a little camping stove that I had. Um, so we, in the railroad lines, go through town. So you don't have to sort of wander off. The, I mean, usually you just step off the lines and you're in the town. And not a lot of hills, I think you mentioned. <laughs> yeah. Because I mean, trains, trains don't go up hills. They don't go up hills worth the dam. No, they don't. And they, and, <laughs> right. and they like cutting, they like cutting the sort of tangents off of things. So, so they're very, you know, we were carrying 60, 70 pounds. We were walking 10, 15, 20 miles a day. Sometimes it was, you know, midwinter, it was freezing cold. Sometimes it was, you know, literally a hundred degrees I mean, hotter than it is today. And so if you're not walking uphill and you're not doing a lot of loopy curves, you know, you're definitely grateful for that. You know, so as I was reading the book, and I hope you're not offended by this, and I'm reading about a number of grown men walking along railroad tracks. You know what came into my head? No, tell me. V- various scenes from the movie Stand By Me. Oh, of course. of course. You know, I, I never saw it, but a lot of people have told me that. Yeah, of course. You must have started walking on the train tracks and just followed them the whole way. Yeah, yeah, right. And then after dark, Trey must have come along and I'll smack go. Yeah. And, and it seemed to me, so that's sort of a wistful look at sort of young boys who are a little bit also trying to figure out what the world is about, make their way, but much younger. But, but I guess, does that ever leave? Should that ever leave that sort of, you know, searching for what the hell your life is about and wanting to meet America? Do you think you'll do it again in 10, 15, 20 years? I mean, you know, I was doing, I was going back out there um, as recently as a couple of years ago. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, 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 I love that environment. That sort of like weird, half wild, half industrial environment of the railroad lines. I absolutely adore. And, uh, and I also love being in the wilderness. I mean, I have two young children, um, which is a different form of, uh, and I don't mean this ironically, it's a different form of freedom that it's enormously profound for me, but but um, I, I do hope I get out there. So I want to go back to something you were saying before about the nature of you know, interaction, combat, fighting between smaller individuals and larger individuals. And one of the things you say in the book is, quote, the reason size and strength do not absolutely determine outcome is that tactics play a huge role in human conflict, end quote. And then you also say, and this had me thinking, and I'd wonder if you could elaborate on it. And, and you talk about boxing matches and um, mixed martial arts and, and other kinds of fighting that you say approximate sort of violence in, in the wild and in the world. And you say, 
you know, some of the, the issue is, quote, the disproportionate energy costs of an offense compared to a defense, end quote. And you refer to one particular fight. It sounds a lot like, a, you know, the, the famous rope-a-dope that people talked about with, with boxing. Explain what you meant by that and how that matters sort of in the larger world of conflict. Yeah, I mean, it, it costs energy to throw a punch. Uh, it costs energy to invade another country. Uh, in that case, economic energy. But much less energy, as you also say, to, to dodge a punch if you do that successfully. Yeah, so it, it scales up. So at every scale, slipping a punch in a fight requires less energy, just less movement, than throwing a punch. And we don't have infinite amounts of energy. So at some point, even a conditioned fighter if he or she throws enough punches in a row, they are in oxygen debt. And once you're in, an o- in oxygen debt, if you don't alleviate that, pretty soon you can't really function very well. And so what it means is that the attacker, I mean, just look what happened on D-Day. I mean, the, the um, you know, enormous American casualties trying to take those beaches, eventually it worked. Uh, but had, had they gotten bogged down on those beaches without any cover, it wouldn't have worked. And so basically the, 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 the attacker because they're using up uh, manpower or energy or ammunition or oxygen or whatever it may be, because they're using it up disproportionately faster, if they don't clinch the wind fairly quickly, there's a chance that even if they're a a more powerful force, they may actually never win. And and so for a large, you know, a 250-pound man moving around in a boxing ring or in a field just costs more energy than a smaller person. And if the smaller person could just not lose for long enough, which is what the Taliban did to us, if they could just not lose for long enough, the bigger entity is basically going to run out of resources. And is that always true? Or is that generally true? I would, I'm not sure you mean by always true. And the idea that if if the large sort of cumbersome uh, weighted down force, whether an individual or a nation state, does not clinch a quick victory against an enemy that is mobile and kinetic and small and nimble, that it's doomed to lose. Well, I would just say the longer the fight goes on, the more the odds shift in favor of the smaller entity that's using up less energy. Yeah, I mean, you give up. It's not worth it. Well, or you're just incapacitated, right? I mean, I, we've all been in deep oxygen debt. You know, there's not much you can do except grab your knees. You know, that's not a very good fighting position. So, yeah, it's, it's you know, it's, it's physics, it's metabolism, it's biology, it's economics. I mean, what was the cost of Afghanistan for us? It's not something we could sustain for, say, 200 years. And I think that, Economically speaking, the Taliban probably could have fought for 200 years. And there's something also about, you spend a lot of time talking about the, the concept of self-sufficiency of, for want of a better phrase, you know, mobile societies. Some societies are more mobile than others. You talk about the difference between, you know, as they evolved over time, agrarian societies where you start to stockpile crops and food as opposed to societies that roam around and sort of catch and eat what they kill on an ongoing basis that there are differences in those societies. What are they and which is superior? Well, I mean, superior is a a value judgment. Um, I mean, what I would say is that each offers particular advantages. Um, Agrarian society was first established around 10,000 years ago, and there were um, pastoral societies and hunter-gatherer societies all around them that were, I think one could argue, more free on the individual level. Um, It's very hard to oppress a mobile society because in the morning their tents are gone and, you know, they're in the hills. And, you know, likewise, in a a small group, a sort of survival level group of hunter-gatherers, it's very hard to accumulate wealth because you can't carry it. And it's very hard for one powerful leader to dominate everybody because it's too easy for a coalition of males to just kill the person. 
you know, that's been studied quite a lot by a wonderful um, anthropologist named Richard Bohm, uh, the sort of morale, you know, group morality of a hunter-gatherer society. Abuse by the powerful is one thing they will absolutely will not tolerate. But, but once you have people who are invested in a piece of property, who have picked all the stones out of the soil, who have irrigated, who have spent a generation developing a piece of land, um, you can't just pick up and go. You lose a an, an whole lifetime's investment in this property, and you depend on those crops for your, your food, for your income, your livelihood. And so that makes sedentary people willing to, say, pay 20% of their crop to the, to the king or whoever, whoever, whoever the, who's ever at the top of the power structure. Um, and that sort of pyramidal structure also allows for very wealthy elite segments of society to, to pay for and establish a standing army that's then even better at making outcomes um, go in favor of the establishment. So, so you get this sort of fork in the road between <clears throat> mobile societies that are materially poor, but um, have enormous amount of personal and group autonomy, and sedentary societies that are much wealthier, much more powerful in military terms, uh, but the individuals in those society are literally or figuratively working a 10-hour day you know, deeply in debt, don't really have the autonomy that a, a pastoralist herding sheep in the mountains, um, the proverbial um, Abel, you know, the, the old biblical story of Cain and Abel. Cain, Cain, the agriculturalist, the farmer kills Abel, the pastoralist, out of envy. And so you have that story played out over and over again in human history. Is it the case that one society versus the other is more or less free or just have different kinds of freedom? Well, it depends how you how you define freedom. You know, I would say that the uh, a useful definition of freedom is that you can't be unfairly controlled by a greater power. Uh, unfairly controlled. Yeah. So you know, one of the uh, one of the advantages of small scale mobile societies is that there is a kind of collective decision making where more people are involved than in, say, the Sumerian Empire, where. Um, it really was a top-down hierarchy, and most, or, or, or medieval Europe, where most of society were effectively serfs, and not, not only not participating in, in large-scale decision-making, but were subjected to pretty, pretty onerous conditions and abusive economic practices. But I want to focus on that one word that, that's doing a lot of work there, unfairly controlled by greater power. But if you have a reasonable and fair social contract in which, in these sedentary societies, as you call them, there is an understanding that you pay 20% of your crop or you pay a certain amount of tax that so long as the, the, the features of that system are fair in ways that we can talk about and that other people have talked about and written about for centuries, that you get a certain freedom, freedom from hunger, freedom from want, you know, the, the, the kinds of freedoms that Franklin Roosevelt talked about, which are real and important freedoms too. Right. I mean, but they're, they're, I mean, that's where democracy comes in. That's why it's a profound form of freedom because the population gets a vote, right? It's a collective decision to figure out how we want to run the country. And, 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 you know, furthermore, the powerful in this country, those with a lot of responsibility, those we elect um, or assign to positions of power, they, they are abiding by the same rules that we do. So, you know, the, the, you know, we pay our, you know, we pay our taxes. It's a huge chunk of our, of our income, but the people that write the tax law, they also pay taxes, right? The president also pays taxes, the generals, the police chiefs. They well, all, not all, not well, all presidents well, necessarily. No, okay, but that right, but that, but, <laughs> but that's. I know, I agree, and, and and that that's in violation of the law. Yeah, uh, but there is a law there that says no. This what's true for the populace is also true for the rulers, and and that was that that is a very very new invention, right? That you know that that, that was not true in medieval Europe, 
the Ottoman Empire, you know, on, on back, the Han Dynasty, and go for, as far back as you want. And you really, you really find that again in a pastoralist or hunter-gatherer economy as described by anthropologists. Yeah, it seems to me that the, the problem is, and I don't know if this is a feature of, of freedom or it's a different kind, you know, freedom and equality are, are related in some way and affect each other, but they're different things. And the other point that you make that I've been thinking about since reading your book in, in, in a particular way is, you know, once society has moved from being, you know, nomadic and mobile to sort of sedentary, fixed, you know, gathering societies, that introduces, notwithstanding a fair social contract, but that introduces the possibility of radical inequality. You know, in, in, in a nomadic mobile society, whether you're talking about, you know, Apache Indian tribes or, or some other examples, the difference in the value and the quote-unquote wealth of the most powerful member of that society and the least is just not that different because everyone is important and you're, and you're eating as you go. But once you begin, you know, stockpiling food, then you introduce the possibility of radical inequality. Explain what you meant by that. Yeah, I mean, the, the anthropologists have looked at North America, the tribal peoples of North America, and what they found in prehistoric, in the prehistoric record was that something like 90-something percent of the native peoples of this continent that did not have a way to stockpile food or to monopolize the production of food were basically classless. Like, there were essentially no social classes. There were differences in positions of authority and responsibility, but there were basically no social or political uh, And, and possibly life expectancy, too. We, no, yeah, no difference. Yeah, exactly, exactly. In the tribes tribal societies in North America that were able to stockpile food or monopolize the production of food, immediately there were social classes, political classes, and slavery. And so um, in something like 90% of those societies. And so, yeah, you're absolutely right. And the question is, can a democracy maintain a relatively fair distribution of income and also have, you know, capitalism is a great generator of innovation and all kinds of things that are good for the human experience. So can it maintain a sort of fairly fair system and protect the sort of capitalist engine and have it be a free and democratic and just society? Can we sort of do all these things? And so ultimately the question is, is it better to be at the bottom rung of a capitalist democratic society or smack in the middle of an egalitarian but materially poor society? You know, I don't have an answer to that question. I would say that modern democracy has brought a huge amount of good to the human experience and that, you know, where we fall behind a little bit is the, I think, sort of grotesque income inequalities that we find even in very, you know, enlightened countries like America. It's still there. And with a follow-on consequence of a, a disparity in, in how justice is, is meted out. My conversation with Sebastian Younger continues after this. The other point you make that I think is well said, and it's important all the time, but particularly now, and I wonder if you were commenting more specifically on what's been going on in the country in the last year or two, and it seems like in various places you are, but you're referring to universal principles, and I think that's a good way of going about it. You say on this issue of freedom, quote, for most of human history, freedom had to be at least suffered for, if not died for, and that raised its value to something almost sacred. In modern democracies, however, an ethos of public sacrifice, and you talk about sacrifice over and over again, we'll, we'll talk about it. An ethos of public sacrifice is rarely needed 
because freedom and survival are more or less guaranteed. That is a great blessing, but allows people to believe that any sacrifice at all, rationing water during a drought, for example, are forms of government tyranny. They are no more forms of tyranny than rationing water on a lifeboat. And then you say, which I like very much, the idea that we can enjoy the benefits of society while owing nothing in return is literally infantile. Only children owe nothing. What other things were you talking about there? Well, I mean, I was writing this in the middle of the great, you know, um, mask controversy. Controversy. Whether the, right. the government has the right um, to the legal right, the political right, uh, to enforce a, a, a mask ruling um, during a pandemic. And I, the point, you know, I, I don't come down on either side of any specific debate. But what I would say is that the, the idea, just on principle, broadly speaking, the idea that you can accept the benefits of being part of a group, any group, be it the United States or, you know, your outward bound expedition, you know, and everything in between, that you can be, you can receive the benefits of being in a group, but then turn around and say, but you can't tell me what to do and I'm going to do whatever I want. Like that is a relationship that children have with adults. That's not a relationship that adults have with each other, that individuals have with the group. And that, you know, for most of human history, that position would be completely insane and they, the person we <laughs> picked up and thrown out of the life raft. And, uh, it, it, <laughs> it, and you know what, and what I would say, I mean, just, just to follow on just for a moment, it's an interesting sort of real world example. I looked at a, a, a street gang in, in Chicago in the 1960s um, called the Vice Lords in the Lawndale section of Chicago, which was extremely violent back then. And maybe it still is. I, I don't know. But um, the, the Vice Lords were formed because the young, it was an African-American community and the young men in that community were really at risk of being attacked or killed by other street gangs in the area. So they formed the, the Vice Lords. And in that, in that group, they all found a sort of mutual defense that kept most of them fairly safe most of the time. The one and most important criterion for being a member of the Vice Lords is that if another Vice Lord was under attack by a rival group, that no matter how bad the odds were, 10 to 1, I don't care, you run towards that guy and you help him out. And if you go the other way, you're just not a vice lord. And so what they do when, you know, of course, people get scared. They're not, we're not all infinitely noble or courageous or whatever. So what, what would happen is that the guys that turned, turned tail and ran the other way and didn't help out their brother in the, in the street fight, they would just track that, the vice lords would just track that guy down. They wouldn't beat him up. They wouldn't put a hand on him. They would just put him in the back of a car and they'd drive him into the middle of the enemy gang's territory and just make him get out of the car, walk home. You're on your own. You're not part of this group. Then you're not part of this group. You're on your own. So that, so that's to my point, like if you enjoy the benefits of a group, you do owe it something. You might even owe it your life. So do you owe it where, you know, do you have to stop at a red light? Yes, you do. You don't have the right to run red lights, right? Because you're part of the group because there, right. there's a communitarian aspect to it. Right. And to follow the rules of the group that are for the common good, I guess is the point that you and many, many people have made is not to be denied freedom. And so you have these people, I think in some cases on the edge of society or on the edge of sort of mainstream thinking who say all taxation is tyranny, right? I guess if you start a society in that way, you can make some argument for that. Then you have to figure out how you, you know, take care of the common good and you do things that individuals can't provide society like roads, bridges, et cetera. But I, I think some of these folks don't realize that the, being a free rider, when most people follow the rules of the group that are meant for the common good, does not mean that you are a freedom seeker. And the other problem is, I'm going to ask you to talk about it. This word freedom, it's not that it's devoid of meaning, but lots of people have different views about what that means. And so in certain instances, 
they will take a certain position. And then other things they don't like, they whether it's wearing a mask or something else or paying taxes, they will say, well, to be free, I need not be forced to do this particular thing. And people conflate the freedom to do what they want with uh, you know what freedom corporations have to do what they want. People don't understand the First Amendment in this regard. Sometimes people are conflating legal freedom with personal freedom or financial freedom or other kinds of freedom that are not part of sort of, you know, legal policy or the social contract. And that, that was a rambling way of asking the question, do you think part of the problem in these debates is that nobody knows what the hell anyone else is talking about when they say freedom? Well, there's, I think there's a number of problems. You know, first of all, freedom is one of the few things, along with community and one's children, that people will readily die for. There are too many things on that list, and freedom's, you know, it's a short list, and freedom's one of them. It's a very, very potent word that goes to- Well, you know, but, but you, you, I, I don't have the quote in front of me, but it was a powerful one, which bears on what you just said. And, and it's something like, you know, people will, will readily sacrifice and even die for a member of their family, to save a member of their family. But to die for and do something for a group requires something more. Did I get that right? I, you know, I'm not exactly sure which quote that was, but I, 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 we, I know what, I, I mean, I know what we're talking about. I, I mean, humans die immediately when they're on their own. They die in nature immediately. Humans only survive and in fact thrive because we're social primates. We function in a group. We're an extraordinary animal. And we get our safety and ultimately our autonomy and our and, and closely related to our autonomy is our sort of human dignity. We get that from being within the protection of the group. And if the group can't protect itself, people's autonomy, their freedom, their dignity is, is quickly trampled. I, I mean, I cite an example of the Yamnaya, who are a, a fierce nomadic tribe um, off the eastern steppe. And 5,000 years ago, they invite, invaded the Iberian Peninsula. And within 100 years, they, were, they, they fought on horse-drawn chariots, right, with battle axes. They were sort of like the first motorcycle gang, right? They traveled without women. They invaded Europe. They cruised right into Iberia. And within about 100 years, they killed all of the men in Iberia 5,000 years ago and clearly mated with all the women. And so, you know, the Iberian men were not able to defend their, the Iberians, period, were not able to defend their territory from the Yamnaya. They had a radical loss of freedom. So your, your, your freedom comes from the ability to defend yourself and then not finding yourself in a society where the powerful are then oppressing the less powerful. Like that's the, the double-edged sword of the human endeavor. So what I would say about the word freedom is that it's so potent and powerful. People often use it to justify doing, doing things that are immoral or illegal. And they just say, well, I'm defending my freedom. You know, so I'm going to invade the Capitol building or I'm going to not pay my taxes or whatever. It's, it's, or not wear the mask. It's, it's, or, it's a pat, yeah, right? For, because it has so much power in, in, I think, Western democracy generally, and in the United States of America in particular, that you just you you play the quote unquote easy, facile freedom card, and you say, "I'm not going to wear masks because freedom." Right. Whereas I think my view is, and some people defer about this, if it is so that the medical research says that the more people wear masks in the short term, the more general freedom we will all have to do. All those other things that we want to do that I think accord with what people's general sense and understanding of what freedom is, then it's not a loss. It's not a loss of freedom any more than in your example. Uh, it's a loss of freedom to ration water on a lifeboat. Why is that so hard for people to get? Well, I think it's, you know, I think it's an extremely politicized environment now. And, and I think people were taking direction from the top of their government a couple of years ago 
and it was it was direction that was not made in good faith. It was not for the general good. It had very specific political uh, intentions, and that subverted the whole conversation. But what I would say is that when they say freedom, often they're really actually talking about their rights. Like it's not freedom; it's their rights. They're like, I have the right to not wear a mask. And freedom is a much broader term, and it really, you know, it, it sort of involves a different equation. But but usually people are talking about well my Second Amendment rights. It's not your freedom. It's a specific right. And then that, that conversation quickly evolves into the reality that rights are given by the group to the individual. And you cannot give yourself the right to drive on the left-hand side of the road. Only the group can give you that right because there's construction and there's a cop there, right? So, so in a democracy, there is recourse. I mean, that's the problem I have with sort of take matters into your own hands kind of thinking is that if you don't like the mask mandate or you don't like the results of the of the 2020 election or what have you, go to the courts. Like there's a, there's a free and clear process for addressing perceived wrongs. Um, and if you fail in the courts and you're in a democracy, sorry, like if I'm accused of committing murder and I feel like my freedom's being abrogated, the jury decides I committed the murder, that's just how it goes. It doesn't matter that I feel like I should be free. free feelings have nothing to do with anything in a democracy. You talk about sacrifice and the importance of sacrifice on the part of people in connection with freedom, but also on the part of leaders. But here's the quote that I was looking for before, but found a little bit late. Quote, while most people will defend their families without a second thought, dying for an idea usually requires giving ordinary people an extraordinary sense of purpose. And both national suffering and God do that nicely. None of that will help, though, if leaders aren't prepared to make huge sacrifices as well. And here's another thing you say about leaders. And I wonder if you would elaborate, uh, quote, in a deeply free society, not only would leaders be barred from exploiting their position, they would also be expected to make the same sacrifices and accept the same punishments as everyone else, end quote. What's your thinking about this notion of sacrifice on the part of leaders? Well, I think that what it weeds out is opportunists who want to be leaders so that they can maximize their own individual benefit. And when, you know, for hundreds of, for 100,000 years, leaders of human groups were expected to uh, run the same risks and suffer the same consequences and hardships as everybody else in the group. And, you know, even in the modern day, I mean, what I was looking at is sort of like underdog groups that, that succeeded in maintaining their autonomy in face of the face of a greater power. So the, the um, Easter rising in Ireland around a hundred years ago is a great example. I mean, the, you know, the British empire was enormously powerful, it was 50 miles off the Irish coast, Right. And through a series of, you know, some military encounters and political movements and et cetera, the Irish achieved their freedom from England. And during the Easter Rising, which was in 1916, during about one week, um, the sort of paramount leader of the Irish rebels in Dublin uh, was a man named Michael, I think his name was Michael Conley. And he was sort of infamous for just being completely unheedful of his own safety. And at one point, you know, his aide was trying to drag him out of the street because he, right, right, he was getting shot at. And he was trying to scout a good location to put sandbags. And his aide was like, sir, you're going to get killed. Please take safety. You know, so that's a proper leader. And I, people have asked me, like, what kind of leaders do we do we deserve? And my answer is like, point blank, we deserve leaders who will die for us. Period. End of sentence. That's always been true in human society. And. You know, obviously, in a, in a fairly safe democracy where it isn't a street fight, literally a street fight every day, you don't need the kind of raw physical courage of someone like Michael Conley. But at the very least, let's hope for the sort of moral courage 
of, say, Liz Cheney, right? Now, I, I just have to say I'm a Democrat. I, if I lived in Wyoming, I can't really imagine voting for Liz Cheney. But I, enormous her, I, I admire her enormously for standing up for a principle at, at some really serious consequences for her political career. And, you know, I would say that um, the possibilities of, of advancing yourself as a political leader, advancing yourself economically, are so enormous that proper leadership in this country would be to positively, overtly announce that you will refrain from enriching yourself while in office. And, you know, what, you know I don't know the details of the story, but I got to say, just on the face, and Democrats are just as bad as Republicans in this matter. Um, but what I would say is that someone like Mitch McConnell, who's worth tens of millions of dollars in a sort of circular cash loop that goes from the coal industry into his legislative record and back into the industry, you know, that that kind of back scratching between political leaders and industry leaders is it's not an, an overt rupture of our freedom, but at the end of the day, it's a less free society than one where our leaders were acting in a moral way. I want to ask you a question about your war reporting. And when you talk to people who were in combat and in the military fighting in the, uh, the war in Afghanistan or any other conflict, did you have the sense that the soldiers, the American soldiers, believed that they were fighting for something like freedom? Or what did you get the sense they thought they were fighting for if it was something other than just doing their, you know, military obligation? Well, it wasn't an obligation. You know, they, they obviously, they, it's a volunteer army and they joined. Right. Yeah. But, but once you volunteer, yeah. then you're obligated to, to serve. Yes, right. And, and they all wanted to be in a combat unit. Were, they were all men. It was a combat unit in eastern Afghanistan. There was a lot of combat. And they really saw themselves as sort of warriors that they were sent out there to execute a tactical task. They wanted, they were very uh, eager to be in combat. They liked it. And they didn't think about their efforts in sort of grand terms. They signed up in the wake of 9-11. So that if anything, they had a sense that America had been attacked uh, and had to be defended. The idea that al-Qaeda hated our freedoms uh, with an S, which is always thought was a weird way to use the word, to me, as a journalist, as an American, doesn't really make sense. Like, we, you know, we were in Afghanistan to defend our security, to, to kill or capture Osama bin Laden, al-Qaeda, but our, you know, our freedom is sort of self-given in our Constitution and our Bill of Rights. And, and al-Qaeda, you know, what they wanted was us to stop doing business with Israel and to get out of Saudi Arabia. I don't think they give a damn about our freedom in this country. I think it's completely irrelevant to them. But again, I think that word was dragged into the war effort because it's so potent. And once you say, I'm protecting my freedom, whether you're the January 6th rioters or George Bush after 9-11 or whatever, once you say, I'm defending my freedom, everyone sort of backs off and says, oh, well, okay, well then, uh, yeah, go for it. Everyone has the right to do that. Do you think there is a connection between war and masculinity? Well, for most of human history in every human society, um, organized violence is almost invariably committed by men. I think the sort of levels of testosterone in young males, their physical abilities, just as, as a sort of athletes, their, their mindset, the, the, the social rewards that are given to people who have acted, to men who have acted bravely in combat. Um, frankly, sexual access to women who are impressed by their feats of, you know, heroin, you know, whatever. Um, there was a really serious study about Medal of Honor recipients, and they, throughout their lifespans, they had far more children than people who fought in the same units who were not given the Medal of Honor. Uh, so there definitely are, like, uh, very real rewards meted out to people who participate in organ men who participate in organized violence successfully and heroically. Uh, so, in that sense, yes, there is definitely a connection between violence and masculinity. Is that is that a good thing or a bad thing? 
I mean, I, I don't, you know, in terms of human evolution, I don't think there is a good or a bad. It's whatever works and, and sustained and supported the species as successfully as possible. So, if we, you know, if we have a capacity for violence, it's because that was adaptive and allowed violent individuals to maximize their reproductive success and their survival. Um, you know, we live in a um, we live in a very complex society that can make decisions that go against our sort of evolutionary hardwiring. We do that all the time. So, you know, I would say that the, the moral conversation doesn't happen so much in terms of our biology, which is given, uh, but in terms of our social organization. Do we glorify violence? Uh, do we glorify oppression or even accept oppression of women? You know, that kind of thing. It's those social values, those moral values where, you know, we have really have the chance to live a, a, a righteous life or not. But, but you're not making a comment on just so listeners will understand you're not making a comment on whether or not women should serve in the military as they do in the modern world. No, I mean, individuals are capable of all kinds of extraordinary things. And, I, you know, I think for the military's purposes, they have a sort of like basic set of parameters. So many pull up, so many, you know, run the mile in such and such a time, whatever it may be. There are just a sort of the minimum requirements, like for the fire department, that your body has to be able to do in order to conduct the tasks of modern warfare. Um, but, I, you know, w- women integrate, I mean, there's an amazing book called The Daughters of Kobani uh, that just came out a couple of months ago about the YPG, this sort of female fighting unit in northern Syria. All, all young women, they fought unbelievably bravely, identically to the men, right? So women, women can do anything men can do in that, in that sense. It just, like, yeah, so, you know, I'm not making any recommendation whatsoever, but that's not, I mean, but people have different tastes, right? And a smaller percentage of women may be interested in combat than men. You know what I mean? Like, they, the sexes don't have the same predilections and tendencies and desires. Clearly, they don't. Before we go, I thought I would ask you to preview your next book project, which, as I understand it, explores something that happened to you uh, on a personal level. Yeah, thank you. Um, uh, last year, I almost died. Um, in fact, I... Oh, I, you said that very matter-of-factly. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I came... So close to dying, you could almost say I should have died, and I somehow failed to. I, I, I had a uh, undiagnosed aneurysm in my pancreatic artery. Uh, it was the result of a um, just a congenital quirk of my body. It wasn't related to any health issue, asymptomatic. And at age fifty-eight, one fine June day, almost a year ago, um, it ruptured without warning. And within a few minutes, I couldn't stand up because my blood pressure was plummeting. I was bleeding out into my own abdomen gushing blood into my own abdomen. Uh, and within, you know, 10 minutes, I was starting to go blind. And it took them from then another hour plus to get me to the emergency room. Uh, when I got there, I'd lost 90% of my blood. And, you know, I, my odds of survival were, I think, almost non-existent. And, um, but I was in and out of consciousness. And I started dying and experiencing dying. I was in this sort of twilight world. I was getting pulled into a dark pit that had opened up underneath me. And I was terrified of going down there. And right at that moment, my father, my dead father appeared above me and started sort of consoling me. And I should say, I'm an atheist. I'm a rationalist. I'm an anti-mystic. Like, I don't believe in anything uh, of that nature. And, um, I'm re- I, you know, I didn't know I was dying. And I'm really at pains to explain what, what my father was doing there. And I did some look research into it. And um, the appearance of dead relatives, dead ancestors in the minds of dying people uh, is extremely common. And, you know, most of the time you don't know you're dying. I mean, maybe it's one of the um, a small mercy of the universe. Like, you know, people that are dying often don't know it. Um, and yet the dead appear. 
and comfort them and advise them and even tell them, no, turn back, go back, don't do this. And I want to understand, my dad was a physicist, and I want to understand in sort of like clear and rational terms what might be happening uh, when people die. And, and, come, and obviously we know because they, some of them managed to come back like I did. So my book is going to be called Pulse, and it's going to be about what keeps us alive and what happens when we die. Well, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, in the meantime, congratulations on your most recent book, Freedom. It's been fun talking to you. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for the great questions and the great conversation. My conversation with Sebastian Younger continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. To try out the membership free for two weeks, head to cafe.com slash insider. Again, that's cafe.com slash insider. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Sebastian Younger. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet, or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to staytunedatcafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by Cafe Studios and the Vox Media Podcast Network. Your host is Preet Bharara. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior producer is Adam Waller. The technical director is David Tattashore. The Cafe team is Matthew Billy, David Kurlander, Sam Ozerstaden, Noah Azulai, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Jennifer Korn, Chris Boylan, and Sean Walsh. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.